This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In an increasingly polarized America, where TV shoutfests have replaced civil discourse, a voice on the radio reminds us that there are some things we can all agree on. Reverend Stephen Bauman has delivered a daily message on WCBS radio in New York City for 10 years. In 60 seconds, he cuts through the noise, the hurry, and the troubling headlines of one of the most frantically paced cities in the world with a calm, unhurried observation on life, meaning, values, and how we live together. Now his reflections are collected in a new book, Simple Truths on Values, Civility, and Our Common Good. And Reverend Bauman is Senior Minister at Christ Church in Manhattan. It's a United Methodist Church, and he is here on WGVU. Stephen, welcome to Common Threads. Thanks very much, Fred. Glad to be with you. So how long have you you've been doing this now for 10 years? Yeah, I, uh, I started about 10 years ago. Uh, what happened was that I had been in conversation with a fellow uh, for, oh, about a year. And uh, we were talking about a whole range of issues that were emerging out of his life that also led into wider considerations. And uh, one day he came and said, you know, I think we ought to find a way of, of uh, engaging many more people in this larger conversation. And after a bit of time, we sort of cooked up the idea of my delivering one-minute spots on the matters that you describe, value, civility, our common good, and meaning, and that we would then buy the time on the radio and give them away as it were, so that they weren't in the, they weren't uh, advertisements so much as they were simply prompts to get people thinking about things that matter. It was sort of our idea that, uh, as you've already indicated, that the airwaves and our media generally are more filled with real and um, partisan and sharply worded uh, editorials and so on, and we thought maybe we could reach beyond that and engage people in a broader conversation kind of wake them up a bit to something that might so you might weren't you weren't uh, thinking about so you weren't employed by WCBS no 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 this was our own uh deal and uh uh we bought we we still buy the airtime and I buy it on a contractual basis and I can only imagine that that radio airtime in New York City WCBS a, a CBS O and O is not cheap that's right. It isn't cheap. You know, uh, and I also buy the most expensive airtime. That is, uh, I'm on at 544 in the afternoon. That's the hottest, that falls within their hottest time frame. So I'll, at any moment, I'll have a million listeners. And uh, it's been really very interesting to see the kind of response I get in that, in that uh, audience as well. That's amazing. Uh, and, and may I ask, where this is not a profit-making venture, oh, no, not right? at all. No, so, as a matter of fact, the way this has to work, uh, 
is that because it is costly, um, I buy airtime on a contractual basis uh, as the budget of the church allows. So there are months when I'm not on the air, but then there are months when I am on the air. And what I've discovered over the years is that oftentimes, and you may know this yourself from your own radio work, people don't realize I haven't been on for a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually worked to my it's actually worked to my benefit over the years because uh, what what it's made happen for me is that my name Stephen Bauman is recognized in a broad catchment area around New York, even though I'm not on all of the time. Mm-hmm. And what is the format of WCBS these days? CBS is a all news and information station. When I went about this. Um, in the early days, I, I uh, contracted a fellow who was good in public relations, and we did some research on radio in the New York area. There are a couple of information, news and information stations. We talked about the classical music station that's owned by the New York Times, WQXR. We talked about what about another kind of music station. But at the end of the day, we thought that our best listening audience was going to be an audience that was tuned into a, a relatively seriously formatted news and information station, which WCBS is. And though, though it's fast-paced and uh, they cover a lot of territory in a very short period of time, you know, news, weather, sports, traffic, and so on, we thought that it would be that listening audience that was being, uh, that was used to uh, hearing people talk on radio uh, for short periods of time, that that was probably our best audience. And, and so this is not a, a talk format at all. This is, uh, as I've heard described, give us 20 minutes and we'll give you the world, right? It's, <laughs> That's uh, right. That's uh, it's, it's headline do. news, uh, short, short stories, uh, and then it's pretty much repeated. That's so, right. So you're not, you're not competing with the talk shows, if you will. That's right. The idea is, I think, well, and in fact, what happens is that as people are listening to the information that they're looking for, say they're looking for traffic report or the weather report or or the latest uh, ball scores and so on, that in the middle of that is interjected a minute about something else entirely, something that might help hopefully sort of tweak them and wake them up. And have you seen, or should I, I should put it this way, does the church, uh, and again, this is Christ Church in Manhattan, right. does Christ Church see any sort of return on this? I mean, do people, uh, are people led to any more generosity because of, of what you do? Well, uh, that's a hard question to answer because we don't have direct tracking on it. I do have some folks who show up at church because they've heard me on the radio, although I wouldn't say that, that we have a huge groundswell of new people as a result. Uh, it certainly has a payoff in the sense that the church has much greater visibility within the wider New York City environment. It's astonishing to me how I'll be in completely secular environments and uh, someone will say, oh, are you from Christ Church in Manhattan? And uh, 
I could be in Connecticut, I could be in New Jersey, I might be somewhere else in Manhattan. So it has definitely raised the profile of the church, although I don't know that there are specific measures to say that it's, in, it's increased directly our, our gen, the generosity of our own people or even the ranks of the church. Although, I would say this, over the course of that 10 years, the church has grown dramatically and our budget has more than doubled. But I wouldn't draw a direct correlation between these two things. What would you uh, ascribe the, the, the reasoning? Well, I think that, um, gosh, that's a, that's a tough question in some ways. In some ways, uh, I would say that the values that are being espoused in these mini-messages are the same values that are being espoused in the life of this congregation. And I, uh, we consistently hear that the mainline denominations, including the Episcopalians, uh, UCC, and the Methodists, uh, that uh, you're in decline or, or there's a stagnation that's going on, and you say that you've uh, had a, a sharp increase. Uh, would you care right. to speak to that? Yes. Uh, well, of course, the mainline is in decline in some ways. It is suffering. And... Uh, that 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 could be worth a very very long conversation, I suppose. Um, what I what I would attribute our success to is that uh, we've been very committed to to accomplishing a good a good thing right where we are, and not particularly. Um, gosh, how would I say this? I I'm inclined to say not paying attention to the larger denominational issues, although that isn't entirely true. But I guess I would say I want to focus our primary energies on meeting the people right there in the middle of Manhattan where we're located and devising ministries that are useful right there in the middle of Manhattan and also speaking a truth that is simple, direct, open, and by simple, I don't mean um, dumbed down surface. I mean, I mean clear, direct. In fact, in some ways, simple in the sense of it really mattering that people come to church. I want people to come to church because it really matters to them that it, what we have to say, what we are challenging them with, how we're trying to inspire them. That this stuff actually really does matter in a very, very important way, and that they can make a difference in the world, in their own particular corner of it. I believe that that doesn't attract everyone, but it does attract those who are ultimately quite serious about wanting to make a difference. So, as a result, this is a church, by the way, that um, had a glorious past, it was built by a famous preacher of the first half of the last century. In fact, in fact, one of the ironies is that Ralph Sachman, that was this minister's name, pioneered radio preaching in the first half of the last century. He was the NBC radio pulpiteer for over 30 years and was a rather famous character in his day. And uh, the church that got built, the physical church that got built, was this lovely Venetian mosaic and marble masterpiece on the corner of Park Avenue and 60th. But then by the middle of the last century, and then certainly by the 80s when I arrived there, it had fallen into kind of a ruinous decline, and there were just 50 or so older folks attending. 
so we've had to slowly rebuild this congregation, and uh, I've been there now 20 years. So it's been a very slow, long, progressive rebuilding from the ground up, so that now I could probably count on two hands the numbers of persons who predate me there. And as a result, we have a rather young congregation. I'd say 70% of our new members, on average, are under the age of 40. And uh, so that lends a certain vitality. And while we're not a really big congregation, we're a very diverse congregation. We also have uh, represented over 40 uh, ethnicities and nationalities in our congregation. So it's a it's a rather youthful congregation. It's a rather diverse congregation. Those things also appeal to certain segments of the society and don't appeal to others. You know, you, you, know, you bring up something, Stephen, that uh, it, it just really a light bulb went off, and I'm thinking this is something I have to investigate. You said that the founder of your church uh, was the the pulpiteer for NBC, and. I had no idea that the networks actually had ministers on staff, that the, the network radio actually produced uh, religious programming. Yes, they did. And, uh, as I, and it was an hour production as well. Uh, Sockman was, as I said, the radio pulpiteer for over 30 years. Now, mind you, that would have been in the first half of the last century, and it would have happened just as radio was coming into its own it was a relatively new technology then it matured then television took over and and i suspect that what happened is that as tv took over the radio station's commitment to providing that kind of formatting fell away but this was a nationally syndicated radio um, production uh, that nbc produced Ah, very interesting. That's uh, that sounds like a topic for a show sometime well, later on. Well, you know, by, as well, Fred, that in those same days, all of the New York papers would have on Monday on the front page had some summary of what some preacher had said on the following on the previous Sunday. No, so on I'm... Monday morning's paper, there would be something about a sermon that was done on Sunday. That is quite fascinating. It, it tells a, it tells a tale, doesn't it, about how our culture has shifted? Absolutely, absolutely. Let's uh, let's talk about the book itself uh, for a bit. Uh, before that, let me mention that you are listening to WGVU. The program is Common Threads. My name is Fred Stella, and I'm speaking with Reverend Stephen Bauman. He is an ordained Methodist minister, and he is the author of Simple Truths on values, civility, and our common good. And these are short essays, uh, all of which, I believe, have appeared on his uh, one-minute program on WCBS AM radio in New York City. Correct everything in here? Uh, that is, is correct. Is an essay that they've been slightly edited so that they uh, read better than just hearing them, but yes, all of the subject matter has been aired. And I'm, I'm assuming that these little chunks of wisdom just come from life itself your observations and perhaps remedies to issues that you've uh, you've come in contact with right i uh of course i observe my own life they they come from there they will also be prompted by snippets of quotes that i hear people say they come from uh things that people send me that they think i might be interested in i of course, glean an enormous amount of media, 
newspapers, magazines, as well as the Internet. And so I'm inspired by all of those venues. Uh, do you ever uh, uh, deal with issues that have happened to other people that you, you want to include anonymously? Yes, that's. I always change their names, or I might alter the details somewhat. But and that's because I'm, I'm not so much trying to report someone's experience as I am, to to tweak someone to think about things. You know, tweak the audience to think about things. But yes, I will often uh, uh, use material that comes to me in conversations I have with people. Uh, the subtitle of the book, you mentioned value, civility, our common good. We hear an awful lot about civility and its lack here in society. Comment on that for a bit. Well, you know, um, let me use as an example Ann Coulter's recent book, um, which is, is a vitriol <laughs> par excellence. And I also think kind of a kind of a marketing ploy that uh, hot heated talk sells in our culture, but hot heated talk doesn't illuminate. It doesn't, uh, and it also doesn't generate conversation, useful, constructive conversation that can go the distance in issues that really matter. Uh, so this lack of civility I see as a as a real problem within our culture. In effect, I think civility, it may not be the greatest good, but it is a, it, it certainly, it certainly um, is one facet of what uh, a commitment to our common good would be about. If we are all deeply committed, or if, let's say, you and I are deeply committed to our common good, what is in our best interests, and even if you and I were to disagree about something, if we were deeply committed to our common interest as opposed to my particular opinion, we will find a way to communicate and engage the issues that really matter to us in a way that fosters a useful outcome. Right at the moment, I think that our, our current lack of civility indicates that we're not engaged in a, in a serious conversation about our, about our common good. So what I'm one of my sub-agendas here is to, over time, begin to facilitate or participate in a conversation that really tries to address our common good. And civility is one, is one uh, aspect of that. It's interesting. I, I heard a talk show recently be very open and admit that he chooses or, or his producer chooses people to be on the air, to joust with him, to, to, to converse with him. He says, they are chosen to make me look good. I admit that. This is an entertainment medium. And even though they're talking about extremely serious subjects, the, the whole point of the show is to make him look good. And so in, in the banter, if he can squash this person or make this person look silly, that's that's the goal, as opposed to finding the truth or or coming up with uh, a, a, perhaps a remedy or a compromise or a, a, an honest direction in which to go. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, sustained attention on things that matter evidently does not sell books, radio time, TV time, 
and so on. What sells are things that are packaged as entertainment. And that that does not serve any of us very well. It certainly doesn't serve our national interests very well. And this would, this would be true whether it's right or left or wherever it happens to be. So how do we, one of the questions that is looming for me and that I have a deep commitment to sort of addressing is how do we foster a sustained conversation about things that matter without diminishing people's passion in their particular points of view, but where the commitment is on an outcome that benefits the common good. How do we reestablish this conversation? No, so when you're talking about civility, right now I see, I hear that you are focusing on civility as it exists or does not exist in the realm of politics and perhaps religion. What about in our everyday interchanges? What about the person who, the salesperson who does or does not look you in the eye or does not smile or uh, the, the person who's driving next to you that uh, responds in a manner that he may not have responded 10 or 20 years ago because you changed lanes too quickly or something like that. Is that at all a part of... Of, uh, of course, and I suppose, I suppose we could say that my real intention, or my, with, it, with these little spots that I do on the radio and, and that are in this book, there isn't some grand agenda that I'm presenting other than this. My grand agenda is to help people, individual people, wake up to the content of their own lives. And, and uh, the way I try to do that is to, is to um, take things that are right there in front of them uh, on a daily basis or take incidents that are quite natural that flow out of my own experience and try to have them look at a certain um, idea or a certain way of living in the world from a fresh perspective. I want to wake them up to something they have not been thinking about, but something that is fundamentally important. Because I think where your question leads me is to say that ultimately civility comes out of a commitment of individual persons in the way they are addressing the living of their own days. So if we could, if we could help regular folks think more deeply about matters that are in their lives, uh, things, that, things that actually have important value in how they relate to one another, how they relate to their children, how they relate to their partners, how they relate to their co-workers, how they engage their environment in any number of ways. Stephen, you live in New York City, you work in New York City, and I know that there is a myth that uh, New Yorkers are less than civil. Would you care to respond to that? <laughs> I would love to come to New Yorkers' defense on this, because uh, for two reasons. One is my own experience, that I have never, ever been in a situation when I've needed help or aid or directions of one sort or another where I have not been able to receive it in a reasonably pleasant and helpful fashion in New York. That's my own experience. That actually even predates my moving into the city 20 years ago. But I would also say this, and though you haven't asked this, I, I think it's useful to say that since 9-11, I do think that, that there is a different quality to the city as well. 
and I, it's I'm hard pressed to say exactly what that is. Although, I would go at it. I'd go at a response uh, this way: that there's a there's a uh, a greater sense of our own connectedness, a greater sense of wanting to be helpful and focused on things that matter. I don't want to overstate this too much, but I do believe those qualities have emerged more since 9-11. Sure. And I've been to New York before and after 9-11, and uh, I've always had wonderful experiences with, uh, with the people. I think maybe it, it got that reputation, and this is just a guess, because of uh, perhaps the Kitty Genovese uh, murder of, of you know ages upon ages ago in the right. late fifties early sixties. Oh and, right, right. You know, and nobody uh, responded to her cries of help. But uh, boy, when I've needed directions or if I've needed uh, anything, uh, New Yorkers are just uh, fabulous. And actually, the city has had a, a, a great comeback over the last, I'd say, ten years, ten or twelve years. It's cleaner. It runs better. It's uh, there's just a better sense in it. Uh, and of course, we all know that the uh, crime wave has decreased dramatically. Right, right. And where is Christ Church located in Manhattan? Christ Church is on the corner of Park Avenue and 60th Street. It is touted by real estate agents who call me routinely as one of the. F- they, in fact, they will call and say the exact same line to me. Do I know I'm sitting on one of the five most valuable undeveloped properties in Manhattan? And my response is always the same. Well, I've always thought it was a developed property. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure it is very, very valuable, valuable uh, real estate, but I'm also sure it's very valuable to the community it serves. It is. It's a, it's a good place, and it's uh, thriving. Well, Stephen, we have uh, much more to talk about, and we have little time left today, but I'm going to ask you to uh, please join us again next week, and we'll continue this conversation. Thanks very much, Fred. Our guest today has been Stephen Bauman. He is the author of Simple Truths on Values, Civility, and Our Common Good. It is uh, published by uh, Abingdon. And we will return next week to continue this talk right here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and you've been listening to Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.
This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Reverend Stephen Bauman. He's an ordained United Methodist Church uh, minister, and he has written a book, Simple Truths, on values, civility, and our common good. Actually, this is a book of essays that he has used uh, for one-minute spots on WCBS Radio in New York City. We've been talking about the book, uh, how he has uh, come upon the, uh, the material that make up these essays, and civility. And we'll continue our conversation right now with Stephen Bauman. Stephen, welcome back to Common Threads. Thanks very much. I'm enjoying the conversation. Wonderful. Uh, now, we realize, uh, looking through the book, I can certainly attest to the fact that it has a very interfaith uh, 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 feel to it. I, I could give this book to a Jew, I could give it to a Muslim, I could give it to a Buddhist, and I think that the wisdom that is within these pages would be very much appreciated. Um, but you are a Christian, and I'm sure that that Christianity informs much of what you write about. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm curious, what has been the response, not to you per se, but to the radio station itself? And, and in that response. Has anybody ever complained that you know of uh, because they thought that they were getting evangelized on the radio? Uh, No. Interestingly enough, the responses I get run something like this. And this might either be on the phone or in an email message. Uh, Dear Reverend Bauman or Dear Stephen Bauman, uh, I am an Orthodox Jew. However, I want to tell you how much I appreciate blah, blah, blah. Or, dear Reverend Bauman, I haven't set foot inside a church for over 30 years. However, that spot you did on da-da-da-da. Or, I am a Roman Catholic, and I don't think you are, but I think that what you've said about such-and-so was right on the money. It's been a very, very surprising response, actually. I did not expect to get those sorts of responses where people felt compelled to identify themselves when they were talking to me about their responses. Mm-hmm. And so far as I know, that the radio station itself has never received a complaint about being evangelized. And as a matter of fact, I take pains in these spots not to be evangelizing a particular religious position. But I, I suppose you could say that I'm a bit of an evangelist in the sense of advancing uh, conversation and... Um, information about things that matter to everyone, regardless of their religious persuasion. And when you first approached WCBS, uh, you know, how enthusiastic or not were they? They had to swallow hard. (laughs) 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 They were not sure, and it took them a while. Uh, I first made my pitch to the, (laughs) the salesperson there. I then had to go back and make a pitch to her manager, and then I had to go back and make a pitch to their general manager. All of them had to get involved in the final decision. And then they had to see copy and run it through their whatever is the equivalent of their censor department 
uh, for religious content and for, you know, the potential of proselytizing. But mm-hmm. over time, they've come to actually very, very much value these spots because they only get positive press on them. So initially, the, the, uh, the question was not, is your money just as green as General Motors? They, they were really concerned about uh, the image of the station and, and what yeah, they Yeah, they were concerned about the content. And, yes. and they made it clear to me that they couldn't air them if I were proselytizing. And I assured them that that was not my agenda. In fact, my agenda was really quite a bit different than that. Right. And um, if, if I was to pick this up, and, and by the way, are they on the web? Could somebody tune in at yes, 544? Okay, yes. so uh, uh, anyone here, anyone well, listening actually, to... Well, actually, let me take that. You know, I don't actually know if my spots are on the web because there's a different technology. We were just having this chat. I can't confirm for the fact that they're on the web. I don't know. I know the I know the radio station is. I cannot confirm for you that my spots are. Okay, but if we wanted to try, what is it, wcbs.com? Yes. Okay, at 540. Well, we'll, we'll try. We'll see. Right. Um, so, but if one was to... Uh, Although hit, I yes. do, on my own website, which is stephenbauman.org, there are four or five spots there recorded that you could hear. But what I was wondering is, if we're listening on WCBS, will we know that this is a paid ad? Is there anything that that tells somebody that this is a a commercial as opposed to something that is promoted by the uh, radio station? The only thing that I do, the only identifier, comes at the very end, and each of my spots ends with this. This is Stephen Bauman at Christ Church, New York City. So at the end of each spot, I say that, but otherwise there's no other identifier. Okay, okay. Um, you say that the simple truths, the simpler truths, are often hiding in plain sight. How, how do we lose track of them so easily, do you think? Well, as I make clear in this book, uh, that particularly in this day and age, we are bombarded with so much information that we succumb to the idea that all information bits are equal. And so we lose track, often, of things that really matter. And one of the spots actually involves my own experience of, having, uh, re- of receiving a call from my daughter while I'm typing on the computer. And as we're, she's calling from college, and as we're talking, I get a call waiting, and I put her on call waiting. I take the other call. I uh, continue typing out email messages. I forget she was on the other line. I hang up. And then a full 12 hours goes by before I realize, before I remember that, uh, that, she had inter- that I had interrupted our conversation with another call. I think a lot of us succumb to the, to, to the technology, to the information that is bombarding us. And as a result, we often are no longer paying as close attention to the things that come across, come across our daily lives or come into our daily lives that we ought to be spending more time on we're captured by the very next thing that comes along, and we lose track. That's at least one aspect of this. And do you offer any suggestions for getting back on track? Well, the first suggestion is to admit that this is a problem. So if I'm telling this tale, hopefully what happens is that people recognize the truth of it in their own lives and, and say to themselves, well, yes, that's, that happens to me all of the time. So that's the first that's the first bit of business that has to be transacted. 
And then the second bit of business is to make a decision about, I'm going to pay attention to things that matter. I'm going to be paying attention. I do a number of spots, for instance, on matters pertaining to child raising, not in, not in so much in terms of their details, but in terms of, of making the claim that uh, children deserve your very, very best effort now and the fact that you're busy with something else is irrelevant to the fact that they are demanding your attention now. So how do we reframe our life experience? How do we rethink it and, uh, and therefore then give attention to those things that matter most? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I was just getting a text message. I'm kidding. <laughs> exactly. See, there you are. <laughs> Ta-da! Yeah. Right. yeah, I know. I know that uh, that uh, it, it is so um, seductive, I think, is the word. Right. It really is to have so much at hand to be able to, to know that you can be communicating with somebody somewhere uh, at all times. And I think that uh, from what I see, People are having, are, are being less and less, uh, becoming less and less comfortable being alone, being in a car without communicating and, and all of that. I've, I've gotten people, I've gotten calls from people who are driving, just said they call me because they're bored. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Talk to me, make me laugh, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, let me, uh, let me be um, uh, taken out of this moment for, for whatever reason. Uh, in your, um, in your book, do you have the book with you? Yes, I do. Could you give us a, a free sample? Just a, a, sure. Give us an essay that uh, you think well, is, is appropriate. How about if I just do the very first one that sort of sets the agenda? That's fine. That's fine. A young woman told me about a spiritual experience that occurred while flipping through TV channels. For a few minutes, she was mildly distracted by Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? then sailing through something soapy in a talk show concerning the latest trends in cosmetic surgery, she caught a vision of a flood in Africa, people in treetops, arms outstretched to a hovering helicopter. Click. Another channel revealed how the market had fared that day, and she was glad the Dow had bounced back a little. Click. Yet another channel brought her the face of a six-year-old girl shot dead at school by a six-year-old boy. Click. Back to millionaire. And this question to the contestant. Was it Billy Joel or John Denver who sang in Russia in 1985? Then, suddenly, unexpectedly, she said, time slowed. The images melded together, and she swore she heard a voice say, Time to wake up, plain as day. It shook her. Time to wake up. It rang in her ears. It still rang in her ears. Now she said she had no choice. She would have to wake up, whatever that meant, even though she didn't know she had been asleep. By the way, the answer is Billy Joel. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have known the answer to the question. <laughs> well, now you do. That's good. Uh, aren't you glad we're talking right I now? I am indeed. <laughs> so this this really, uh, uh, I think, gives our listeners an understanding of the, the texture of of your writing and the um, uh, the content. And and the questions. I mean, it, it's uh, it's very Jewish in in a way that it asks a lot of questions. That's true enough. And as you know from other spots, there are uh, there are some rabbi rabbinical stories. I yes. even reference uh, going to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. I quote Kaim Potok a couple of times. So yeah, it's it's interreligious for sure. 
Without necessarily reading the essay on the Holocaust Museum, could you give us a, a summary of it and, and what that meant to you? Well, what I say in that spot is that uh, I visited it shortly after it had opened, and I was struck by a number of things. One was the silent, the silence of the place. Uh, there were no bored people wandering through. There weren't tired husbands trailing their wives. This museum demanded your attention. And I also say in my spot that while I have visited many, many museums in the course of my life, I've never wept in one. This was the first time I ever came to the end of an experience like this and just sat down and wept. Uh, and then I invite people to, to uh, be courageous and uh, go ahead and visit this place as well. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and today we're speaking with Reverend Stephen Bauman. He is the author of a collection of essays, which he's entitled Simple Truths on Values, Civility, and Our Common Good. We talked about civility last week. Let's talk about values. And, of course, that is a a real catchword. It's almost been copyrighted by... uh, uh, a particular brand of Christianity here in uh, the United States. How do you define it? And you know, using the the uh, you know traditional family values uh, uh, that is marketed by uh, the more conservative uh, branch of Christianity here in the United States. How do you respond to that? Well, that's a complicated, complicated question, really, because we could say everyone has values and it's always a matter of addressing the question well which values are you really talking about and whose values are you advancing i guess the way i would would uh, respond is to say first of all that the religious right is advancing a set of values that comes out of their own uh, experience and their own commitments and they are completely able, and uh, it's fair for them to advance the values that they wish to advance within the within the public square. I, the way I would respond more directly to your question, though, is to say that the values I'm looking for are those values that are perhaps the largest ones that we can all agree on advance the common good. It's very important for me to attach our common good to the word values, because I'm not certain that many of the values that get espoused are really about our common good in the broadest sense of the word. For instance, we could say that uh, Al-Qaeda is advancing values, but we would quickly say they're not advancing values that are for our common good, our in the largest sense of the word. I'm using that as an extreme example. So the values that I'm trying to look for, the values I'm trying to search for and have a conversation about, are those values that promote uh, the largest good for the greatest number of people. And I'm, I'm hoping over time to have a greater and greater a number of persons engage this conversation so that we can, you know, I don't want to be too grandiose about this, but ultimately to find a new consensus about what is in our vital best interests. 
What I see in the conversation, if you can call it that right now, between, say, people on the left, people on the right, is that people on the left vilify the values of the right, and many people on the right simply claim the left has no values. <laughs> right. Both no positions values. are uh, lack uh, a, a rigor, let's put it that way. And I'm looking for the set of values that would be that would uh, be useful for both the left and the right, that those things that we can all agree on are in our best interests as we're going forward. Maybe that's asking for too much. Part of the problem, of course, is that people have to be willing to have the conversation to begin with. And one of our, I, I would say this, one of the values I do espouse is that it is important to have this conversation, that if you're not willing to have this conversation, that is not in our best interest, nor does it lead to an advance on our common good. So to engage the conversation is a very important value, and to engage it in such a way that respects the other, that honors uh, the dignity of all persons, and uh, and each person's validity as an individual making their way in this world and in this life doesn't mean we'll ultimately all agree on everything, nor does it mean that uh, some of the decisions we make uh, will be amenable to all parties. But, it, but at the very least, we're having this conversation that is in search for those, those ideals, those ways of living in the world that are uh, doing the most for the most of the people. So besides having the conversation, I think that that would be really close to the top of your list. Mm -hmm. What are other things that people can do to promote civility? Well, notions like human dignity, uh, promoting human dignity, the human dignity of all persons. What that requires, though, at the end of the day, is for each of us to examine the furniture inside our own brains. That is, how, how do all of us... Um, hold biases and prejudices that we project out into the world that act actually strips dignity from other people. So human dignity is one. The issue of integrity, personal integrity, is a crucial issue in our current culture. Uh, all we have to do is look at the, at the very large corruptions we see in public, in public life, business life, religious life, numerous corruptions everywhere. Those corruptions beg is how do each of us live lives of integrity? So human dignity, integrity. I also think matters of mature love. Now, mind you, romance is only a subset of the love I'm talking about. In this case, now I'm talking about a probably, out of my own tradition, a Christian version. Uh, my own personal ethic, love God above all things, love your neighbor as yourself. That's my personal mission. That also happens, by the way, to be the mission of Christ's church. That sort of love is rigorous and sacrificial and demands our very best effort. So those things, I would say, are values that I would very much want to advance. And in your, in your conversations with people, uh, may I assume that uh, folks probably agree with you. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to argue against what you're looking for. Well, I think that that's true. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I'm not, for the most part, well, let's put it this way. When I'm in my pulpit, I would be advancing those very same values. But, but the thing is, is that people that take them seriously 
it, there's a lot of rigor in taking those things seriously. A lot is demanded of the individual who says, who, who confesses, yes, I want to be a person of great integrity. Now, what am I doing with my life? What am I doing in my romantic relationships? What am I doing in my relationships with my family? What am I doing on the job? How am I going about my daily living? To ask the question isn't to be judgmental of, of anyone. It is to say, these things really matter. Now, what are we going to do about it? So, on the one hand, you're right. I, I, I don't get a lot of, uh, of argument, because who can argue with, well, it's important to be a person of integrity. And yet, how many conversations do you have or do any of us have where that's the subject? How do we promote our own individual integrity? So, so on the one hand, you're right. Yes, as I've said, I don't get a lot of negative feedback. But on the other, people are left, um, hopefully they're left wondering, how can I advance the cause in these values? Uh, another thing, another challenge, of course, is having organized conversations around matters that are, are of great import uh, where, and controversial matters of great mm -hmm. import. And, and I will use as an example, uh, there are groups around the nation who get together uh, who uh, uh, come from both camps, or I should say come from a, a wide spectrum on the abortion choice debate. Right. People are hardcore pro-choice, hardcore pro-life, and then people who might fall somewhere in the middle and they're having real conversations and and i don't know if there are other groups talking about other issues that are controversial uh, uh polarizing issues are, are you familiar with with uh, that going on in new york at all well uh i can't speak to organized conversations although let me give you an example out of my own experience which is i'm a founding member of an organization called a partnership of faith in new york which includes uh, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim leaders within New York City. And we do have organized conversations around issues that are uh, tough. And uh, we have that both at, at on a small scale, and we also invite the conversation on a larger scale. But now, in, in terms of my own agenda with the spots that I've put together in this book, my hope would be that people will be brave enough to have this conversation around the dinner table. It's funny that you mentioned the issue of abortion, for instance. My 23-year-old daughter is back from a year abroad in India. She's up here with my wife and I. We were having dinner last night, and we got talking about the issue of abortion, interestingly enough. And we were asking each other very pointed questions. Well, what do you think about this? How does, what are the trade-offs? So my, my hope would be that people end up finding themselves brave enough to have these conversations wherever they happen to be. You mentioned last week that uh, sometimes the funds run a little bit low and you're off the air for a little bit. Then you the funds happen and you come back on WCBS. Right. Right. I'm just curious, uh, has there ever been a time when the funds have been there but the gray matter just isn't churning out <laughs> what it needs to churn out at the rate it needs to churn it? Right. I write five, when I'm on the air, I write five new pieces every two weeks. And uh, what I find, just as a practical matter, is that if I can write one, I can write five. But there are days I wake up and I can't write one. 
that this sort of writing requires a particular kind of mind frame and a particular kind of discipline. Uh, I, it's hard to describe, but it can be excruciating uh, at times. I, every word has to count. There can't be any. Uh, there can't be any extraneous language, uh, and you have to have one point in your brain that you have to nail. So it's a very particular kind of writing. It's actually. I can tell you that it's exactly thirteen typed lines in Arial font twelve. <laughs> <laughs> that I know for certain. And I do know that radio can be very unforgiving. Yes, indeed. In, in, in terms of time. Well, well, listen, we are out of time for this segment of Common Thread, Stephen, but I want to thank you again for, for being with us. And you mentioned you had a website, and we didn't, we didn't uh, uh, shout that out last week. Could you give it to us? It's Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Bauman, B-A-U-M-A-N, dot org. Okay, and the book is Simple Truths on Values, Civility, and Our Common Good. Uh, Abingdon uh, Press is uh, the publisher, and I'm imagining that it's probably available everywhere books are available. It is, I think, indeed, certainly on the web as well. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for interrupting your vacation to be with us, and uh, uh, good luck with the book. Thanks very much, Fred. It was a real pleasure to be with you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, our guest Stephen Bauman, the author of Simple Truths on Values, Civility, and Our Common Good. Please join us next week here on WGVU Radio. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.